Did you have a COVID word? Like a code word for COVID. My code word for COVID developed over time, but the word was bonkers. Bonkers. And it wasn't all just COVID, right? So many things that weren't directly related to COVID were also impacted by it. And I kept watching things and I would just think to myself, this is bonkers, right? This is what it felt like. And I would see circumstances and I would just think to myself, folks, not a lot of thought would have got you to a different place. Not a lot of thought. But we struggled to think well long before COVID. When I was young and raising our children, I'd reach out to my dad for advice. And my dad said, never ever ask a teenage boy, what were you thinking? <laughs> because they weren't. If they had been thinking, they wouldn't have done it, right? So that's a wasted question. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to address something that, uh, that was revealed during COVID that actually has a very positive and a negative side to it. And I want to speak on the issue of indifference. Indifference. Today we're going to look at indifference. Restoring compassion and a tired heart. Tomorrow we'll look at indifference. Restoring conversation in a tense world. So what I'd like you to do is think, am I prepared for today? Uh, I've taught a lot of college uh, classes and uh, I've preached a lot of sermons and I would hear people say, I didn't get anything out of that. And I would look at them and say, well, then why did you come so unprepared? <laughs> Because I've heard as many as I've taught. I've heard as many as, I, as I've preached. And I just realized that if I'm going to get something out of it, I've got to be prepared. We raised five kids. You take five kids to Disney World or to Six Flags unprepared, you're in for an onslaught. You have to be prepared for certain things. You come to the Harvard Lecture, of course you think, man, I ought to be prepared. Right? So let's take a moment, we'll pray, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for the opportunity to learn together. May the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So if you look at the screen and you think about indifference, we need a uh, definition. And so think of it like this. The absence of compulsion toward one thing or another, a lack of prejudice, impartiality. So you look at that and you think to yourself for a minute, oh, no, 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 I can see a lot of good that could come from that, right? So a positive example would be indifference toward the outcome of a case or trial, an impartial jury, judge, and judgment, right? So the idea of a justice system, not a legal system, so it's not the same thing. A lot of people do a lot of unjust things through legal channels, right? So that's not what we're talking about. But in the justice system, the idea is that indifference plays a positive role. We're going to see that in the teachings of Scripture in just a moment. Negative example of indifference would be a failure to act for the good of others. Unwilling to give oneself for the upbuilding of others. Collective upbuilding. So this is kind of the idea that 
I'm taking care of me and mine, and if you make it, God bless you, but it's kind of a social religious Darwinianism that I hope you make it. I will, I will actually say that I hope you make it, but my actions prove otherwise. I'm, you're not a huge concern to me. Now, I know that that sounds awful if I say that in church, so in church I'm going to confess that you matter more to me than anything. But the real way it plays out in the daily life is what proves whether I'm indifferent to you or not. Indifference that seems right can go like this. See if this sounds like a date night with someone you care about. <laughs> Where do you want to go to dinner? Oh, it's up to you. It's your call. Whatever you decide. I don't have a preference. I don't care. Sound like that? Yeah, this is how it goes. That's the problem. You don't care. Right? Because especially when you did that on your anniversary. Uh, yeah, okay, let's move on from that, right? I was just trying to be supportive, flexible. I wanted you to go where you wanted. I didn't want to seem like I had to have it my own way. I didn't want to manipulate the outcome. How many of you can relate to a conversation that went something like that somewhere along the line, right? So what you thought, two hands up and three feet, right? So what you thought was, I'm not trying to manipulate the outcome. What the other person felt like was you had no investment. That you didn't care. So now let's look at this from a biblical intent. I want to make sure we have this for the next few days. The biblical intent for indifference is to back compassion-based courage to engage for a shared good. I'm going to leave that up there because we have to have this as a definition. In Scripture, the idea of being indifferent to an outcome means that I'm not going to be okay unless I've done something to ensure your well-being. Now, that doesn't mean you receive it. That doesn't mean you act on it. But I'm not okay if I haven't done something to invest in your well-being. The Apostle Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and the people from Ephesus are crying. They're trying to convince him not to go. And Paul says, don't you understand? I've already crossed the Rubicon of indifference. To what? Well, I mean indifference to whether or not he lives physically or not. What was he not indifferent about? Doing everything he could to share the gospel. So Paul says... I'm okay with whatever sacrifice I would make because I am invested. But I'm indifferent to what happens to me physically because I've already committed that to what happens to you spiritually. Does that help a little bit with the idea of indifference, right? When you're looking at indifference, don't look at one page. Look at two pages. On one side is the page that says, I'm indifferent because I don't care. The other one says, I'm indifferent because I do care. Now, let's look at an example of this in the Old Testament. How many of you are familiar with the Ninth Commandment? Now, I want to say this with respect. If you grew up in the Lutheran or Catholic tradition, then this is the Eighth Commandment. But in the Protestant tradition, this is the Ninth Commandment and in the uh, Hebrew tradition, you shall not bear false witness. Now, how many of you have an idea of what that might be? I mean, what are we working on here? Right, right? So at the end of the day, that is what I came up with as well, is you know, just don't lie. But I want you to notice how this is explained in Scripture. First of all, he says, 
Do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd and do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Now what does that say? Be indifferent to the pressure of the crowd and be indifferent to the economics that might push you one way or another to pervert a just outcome. He's not done. If you come across your enemy's ox or a donkey wandering off, you be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Now, what's he pointing out here? This is the same context, right? He just said, don't let your personal feelings pervert justice. You know, like if you see someone you like and they're donkey in the ditch, run over and help them. If you see someone you don't like or that says here, hate you, you see their donkey in the ditch, you're like, yeah, come. <laughs> he says it ain't the donkey's issue. Whether or not the two of you get along is not the donkey's issue. The donkey's in the ditch, help the donkey out of the ditch. He's not done. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. What did he say earlier? What did he say earlier? Don't lie, don't pervert justice because someone is poor. What's he saying here? Don't take advantage of them if they're poor. Meaning what? Don't let money buy your judgment. How many of you have read this in a while? I wonder. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death. For I won't acquit the guilty. Who's the guilty now? You. If you participated in putting someone to death because you were not indifferent, meaning you weren't willing to pay the price of justice, well, then now you're guilty. Don't accept a bribe. You have to know that was coming. For a bribe blinds those who see, and it twists the words of the innocent. Deuteronomy continues, one witness isn't enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense uh, they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in a dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priest and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false witness against a fellow Israelite, here's what you do. Do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. So if you lie to try to get someone killed, and we find out you lied, Does this sound like the story of Mordecai and Haman? Remember that? He was trying to do to someone, and when it proved he was false, what he tried to do was what? And why are we doing that? Because we're purging the evil from among us. So what was the biblical intent for indifference? Compassion-based courage to engage in a shared good. Now, I realize you may not have read Torah 
in a plot. <laughs> but do you see the power of this for 2022? I want you to think about something for a few moments. What is the difference between lynching someone to kill them and putting someone on trial for murder? What's the difference? Well, one of them is indifferent to the outcome of the case. If it turns out the person is innocent, we're good to go. But the first one depends on subverting that process. That I have a preconceived outcome and I'm going to get my way no matter what it does to you. Even if it kills you and later we find out you are innocent, I can live with that. And what does Torah say? We're not having any of that business. 3,400 years ago, Torah said, we're not going to build a society like that. A society like that can't sustain itself. A society like that will literally implode. It will destroy itself. Why? Because the self-interest is driving everything. And you do realize that if my heart is full of me, there won't be room for you. So indifference demands that I desire a shared good. Notice how Jesus addressed it. Guy came up to him and said, what, what do I got to do uh, to enter a life? Jesus said, well, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He asked which ones. And so Jesus said, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, everyone out loud together, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. How many of you are familiar with this? Right? You, did you notice he didn't give all the Ten Commandments, but he gave a representative of the Ten Commandments? Somebody see that? You know, Jesus isn't saying, hey, we're going on idol idolatry now. He's not saying that. He's saying, you know the Ten Commandments, you know, right? And he's like, yeah, I got them, I got them, I got them. What is weird about the end of this text? I know I've got a lot of Bible scholars in here. Right? Notice that the last one Jesus lists isn't one of the Ten Commandments. Does everyone see that? Does everyone see that? So, and love your neighbor as yourself, he just tacks that on. The 11th command. Romans 13, Paul picks up this theme. Remember Romans 13 is a big chapter about law, right? Uh, uh, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, whatever other commandment may be. Notice Paul's doing the same thing. He said, hey, here's the list. Do you guys remember the rest of them? You're like, yeah, I got the rest of them, right? He said, whatever other command there may be, they're summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, why would that make all the commandments kind of a summation? Because love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So there's two rules in Romans 13, the rule of law and the rule of love. All the commands of the law are summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, I want to make sure we're, we're real clear on something here. Very clear. The rule of law does not work unless it's in submission to the rule of love. 
Say it again. The rule of law doesn't work unless it's in submission to the rule of love. Right? So the people of Israel settle in the promised land, and God says, by the way, we're not giving the Levites, we're not giving them any land. What are we going to do? We're going to give them cities, right? And six of them are going to be what? Cities of refuge. And what's the city of refuge for? If someone kills someone, they can flee to that city, and we will sort it out. Which means what? No lynching in Israel. Isn't it amazing how enlightened God is? Because if you can just kill people and sort it out after, you're doing to someone else what you would not want them to do to you. Or someone you love. You lynch someone else's kid and find out later he was innocent. Well, see, you don't want someone doing that to your kid. So he says, so don't live like that. He said, I know we have laws, but they're all summed up in love. And none of them work correctly if they're not submissive to love. Law and love are not equals. Ever. Ever. Jesus didn't say, the law summarizes love. He says the law of love summarizes the law. So let's think through this for a minute. This is going to get squirrely, but hang with me. So Jesus gets in trouble one day because his guys are going through and they're picking grain. Do you know why I speak like this at Pepperdine? Because we've got people who know their Bible so well. I'm depending on you to know these stories, and if you don't, Google them. You'll find them. <laughs> so Jesus is going through the field. Shake your head if you remember this. It'll go fast. Okay. So go through the field, and guys are picking grain on the Sabbath, and they get in trouble, right? Remember that they get their hands slapped by the uh, religious authorities, right? So instead of Jesus saying, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I forgot about that, I forgot about that, I'm so sorry, hey, we're going to pick grain now. <laughs> Jesus says no. He said, we're actually obeying the law. They're like, no, you're not. He says, we are. There's, ready? Are everybody ready? There's precedent. And Jesus, we might have a few lawyers in here. We might, I don't know. I'm in a congregation of lawyers. That's really amazing. Uh, but uh, it changed my preaching over the years, let me tell you. But, but, uh, but anyway, he gives precedent. Do you remember what the precedent is? Yeah, he tells a story about David. You know, David and his guys were out, they got hungry, and they went into the tent of meeting, and they ate the special bread that they weren't supposed to eat, and it was good with God. Time out. You just used a story to apply law. Yes, I did. And Jesus does it all the time. Does he not? He's using narrative stories about how God interacts with people. And he says, the way that God interacts with people is your precedent for how you apply law. 
Therefore, remember his conclusion? People weren't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people. So from this day forward, when you apply the Sabbath law, apply it through the lens of loving people. That's Jesus' precedent. How many of you think, ooh, Jesus, that's a slippery slope. Now, I know it's going through our mind, but we know it's Jesus, so it can't be a slippery slope. Right? So maybe you're thinking, I'm on a slippery slope. But then you're thinking, it can't be done because he just quoted Jesus. So what do I do with the feeling that Jesus is kind of, I don't know, kind of a little bit loosey-goosey with the law? The law tells you what to do on Sabbath, and it tells you what not to do on the Sabbath. And they did something that we believe is wrong on the Sabbath, and Jesus said they were okay, and he even quoted the Bible to prove it. How many of you find it a little difficult sometimes when someone tells a story to convince you of a truth? I want you to think about it. Because there's a lot more serious case in the life of David. David successfully derails five of the Ten Commandments in one episode. He covets his neighbor's wife. He bears false witness. He murders. He commits adultery. I mean, come on. So what do we do with a guy like that? What does the law say? Do we know Torah well enough to know what the law actually says? Kill him. So Nathan, the what? The ambassador of God's word. A prophet. Goes to David and quotes Torah. He told him a story. story about a guy who doesn't love his neighbor well. And at the end of the story, what does David say? It was me. Nathan, you don't have to apply the story. Someone who acts like that ought to die. And Nathan says, David, you acted like that. And David said, I did. I sinned. And Nathan says, you're not going to escape all the consequences of what you've done. But you're also not going to die. Now, how do you reconcile that with the law? Well, maybe God just plays favorites. Maybe David, like some corporations, is too big to fail. <laughs> or maybe God wants people to read that so that we would know that when you apply law under submission to love, there's a lot of ways things can turn out. You see, part of what happens to us that makes our hearts tired is we're often trying to make law work where only love functions. 
And that's why we get so worn out. It's because we want people to obey and in the priority that we set, the laws that are so important to us. And in doing so, our hearts kind of wither because our hearts thrive on love, not law. Jesus said it like this. He says, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The words I've given you are spirit, and they are life. The Apostle Paul, in his frustration with his beloved Galatian sisters and brothers, he said, listen, circumcision doesn't matter, uncircumcision doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. I find this interesting. It's tucked away in Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. You know, don't lie, right? Speak truthfully to your neighbor. Why? Because the law says. Now that's not what it says. What does this say? Well, because you're members of one another. So why would you inflict a wound on the body that you're a part of? Right? So let's look at how this could uh, unfold for us. What does it take to restore compassion? I'm going to put some things up on the screen that I think are going to help. I want you to take a note of them, take a screenshot, whatever you want to do. Number one, we have reflexes that work against Christ-like, God-honoring, gospel-witnessing responses. We have reflexes that work against us. Do you understand that? We have cognitive, biological, anthropological, sociological, and psychological impulses that work against God-honoring, Christ-like, gospel witnessing responses. Do we get this? That these are reflexive. Let me illustrate. Brennan Manning said this famous quote you're probably familiar with. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What is the acknowledging? The way that our reflexes function in ways that are not Christ-like, not God-honoring, and not gospel witnessing. So let's go to work on this. How do we do this? How do we do this? Okay, so let's, let's, let's go. Number one, commit to compassion. That has to be the most obvious thing. Commit to compassion. Recommit. If you have to recommit, if you need a reset, commit to compassion. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So commit to compassion. Number two, resist the urge to use worldly weapons to achieve good godly outcomes. Right? This is the world we live in right now, isn't it? It's okay to do bad things to other people as long as the end justifies what we did wrong on the way to getting there. But you do understand that that's ruining the reputation of the church in the world for the last 50 years. Does everybody get that? How many of you have been paying close attention to the impact of relig on religion in America over the last 50 years? You know what's fascinating? 55% of all Muslims who leave the Muslim faith and no longer identify with it say 
that they are either, either atheist, agnostic, atheist or agnostic, or they just don't believe anymore. You say, wait, that sounds like Christians. Our numbers are higher. <clears throat> so I want us to process that when we use ungodly processes to apparently do something godly, then the world looks at that and they don't wait for us to get to the end. They don't care about our justification at the end. We lost them along the way. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. Isn't that what Paul taught us? Commit to precision thinking. Now some of you know one of my treasured co-workers, Stephen Maxwell. And Stephen Maxwell, he and I were talking through this lesson. And he said that this is key. He said, we've got to commit to precision thinking. And that's hard in this world, isn't it? Is it not? How many of you at times just feel that it all kind of mushes together? There's so much coming at us that it's hard to think through something. How many of you want to just disengage? Do you feel like that at times? But are the things that you feel like you can't disengage on? Right? Well, what about if we just do some precision thinking? For instance, in establishing my core values, I would say my first core value is, is that I believe everyone matters. My second core value is, I believe that I should love everyone to the fullest extent of my capability. My third core value is, I should listen to everyone as much as they're willing to share. What does that mean? It means that I don't have to have it all figured out, but neither do, neither do you, in order for us to function with each other. We don't have to have everything solved. But do you notice that from a school board meeting to an HOA meeting to Little League to wherever it is, we've abandoned this process. Right? Precision thinking. The Apostle Paul said, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That takes some work, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. To take a thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. One of our elders said that one of the ways that he prepares himself to be a good shepherd is he said, I do a full vent in my mind where I can hear how it sounds and God can hear how it sounds. Full vent. Precision thinking. Next, repeat this to yourself. Being offended won't kill me. <laughs> say it out loud. Being offended won't kill me. I'm going to say something that will be a little bit hard to hear maybe for some of us. But if you've been going to a church 5, 10, 15, 30 years, and they're offending you, and you think you're going to leave, why? Why? Being offended won't kill you. Well, what do we imagine? We go through our whole lives, and eventually, when we got to retirement age, everyone would understand that we just don't have it in us to be offended? Doesn't that sound a little weird? Well, that offends me. Okay. But what does it mean? Like, in practice,
practicality. What does it mean? We have five young adult children, ages 32 to 38. It is an active family. Four of them are married. We've got four grandchildren. When everybody's at the house and they're all sharing their opinions, you think no one gets offended? <laughs> it is a regular practice of our family to be offending and offended. We don't mean to. We just are sure that if we share ourselves, we'll still be loved. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's sister-in-law has this great comment. She grew up in the same professional neighborhood. You know Dietrich Bonhoeffer's dad was a world-famous psychiatrist and a lot of medical doctors in their neighborhood. And so she, her dad was a, a doctor. And she said, one of the things she noticed when you went to the Bonhoeffer house that you had to get used to is when you arrived and, and you had a thought that you thought was important. And by the end, you realized it wasn't. <laughs> Dietrich himself said that part of his upbringing was his dad making them think through things in ways that sometimes felt offensive. Say it out loud again. Being offended won't kill me. Now watch what Jesus says. Do you remember in John 6, Jesus says, does this offend you? But you remember he wasn't done, because what did he say next? If you can't handle this, what are you going to do when the next thing happens? You're going to see the Son of Man with the angels ascending and descending. If you can't handle this level of offense, I'm not for you. If you can't handle this level of offense, I'm not for you. Do you remember what Randy said last night about discipleship and Jesus? That quite often we're just trying to create a Jesus that doesn't offend us. You know, one that we feel like will follow us. And Jesus says, I, I get it. I mean, I know what that's like. I mean, he said, I dealt with that with Peter. Peter, 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 man. You got your mindset on the things of the world. I'm not going to go your direction when you're thinking like that. You remember that conversation you had with him? Mm. Is this an important piece of the puzzle? When we're offended all the time, we don't have room for compassion. Just a couple more. A disobedient act can be eliminated by willpower. Now, do you know what I mean by that? How many of you have uh, walked the journey of recovery with someone you love or with yourself or something like that, right? So when we say that someone, now listen, I know this, is, this could be offensive, so please understand my heart. Some of you know about our ministries in Atlanta, so I'm not, I don't mean this to be offensive. I mean it to be efficient communication. When we talk about someone being a dry drunk, what that means is they're not drinking anymore, but they haven't done anything about the underlying behavior that led to their alcoholism. I don't mean the physical condition of their body. I mean the, the mindset, right? So the idea is there are people who can stop doing a bad thing by willpower. But a disobedient heart can only be liberated by love. It's one thing to stop an action. It's another thing to change a heart, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. 
He says it's got to come from love because law serves love. Do you remember Vaclav Havel? I had a feeling that most of us would remember him. Uh, it depends on your age in the room. But when the Czech Republic, Czechoslovakia, was still under communist rule, he was a playwright, a famous playwright. And he had written a play that kind of satirized the oppressive Soviet government. Isn't it weird how timely that is right now? Isn't it weird, even today, right? But he wrote that play, and then in 1979, he wrote an essay. And this essay was about the power of the powerless. He wrote that in 1979. The reason he wrote that essay is because there was this grocer in Prague. And every day, this grocer, vegetable grocer, would put a sign in his window that said, Workers of the world unite. Sign in his window. But every store had that sign in its window. And it wasn't helping anyone because the sign is what kept you out of trouble with their spy-ridden government. If you had the sign in your window, it meant you complied. Whether you believed it or not, whether you supported the policies or not, it meant you you were in. And one day, that grocer decided he wouldn't put the sign in the window. And he And he decided that he would no longer just vote for elections that had no meaning. And it spurred a movement. In 1989, a student-led protest was put down by the government. Within five days, there was over a million people, and many of us remember these signs on television, protesting the government. Within a couple of days, the communist government in Czechoslovakia folded, and within just a few weeks, Havel was elected president of the future Czech Republic, the first free election in 44 years. Now, how many of you remember some of that, a little bit of that history, right? It was stunning. They call it the Velvet Revolution because it happened without a shot. But what was so crazy about it, the anomaly of it was, how did it happen so fast? Well, the reason was because no one wanted life like it was, but no one was willing to step across the divide and find the other people that wanted a better life. When we don't have room in our hearts for the kind of love described in Torah and applied in Jesus, we will be divided relentlessly, and it doesn't matter how much damage we do, we will remain divided. When we let love take over our hearts, it will change who we're willing to listen to, how long we're willing to listen, and what we're willing to endure in order to love each other well. Amen. He said the real question is whether a brighter future is really always so distant. What if, on the contrary, it has been here for a long time already, 
And only our own blindness and weakness has prevented us from seeing it around us and from within us and kept us from developing it. In Power uh, of the Powerless, he, he wrote that we need to take an authentic responsibility for our own congruence in the hidden sphere of our private lives. Don McLaughlin, this person, as Randy instructed us last night, has to commit to compassion. Resist the anti-gospel reflexes in my life so that I won't reach for worldly weapons to supposedly have godly outcomes. You get where we're going with this? I have to choose to do precision thinking to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. I have to realize being offended isn't going to kill me. If somebody wants to tell me the truth of how they are experiencing life, what is the problem with me listening even if it turns every gear in my body backward? That won't kill me. Me, yeah. but it just might give life to them. Yeah. This matters, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, it is fascinating that when you're not all clobbered over in your heart by how people are offending you and what laws you think people are not getting right, the Davids in your life, the King Davids. That are bugging the fire out of you. Or the Jesuses that are walking through grain fields and flaunting the law. You say, well, quit using our Hebrews. Don't use David. Don't use Jesus. I have to use David and Jesus because God used David and Jesus. Just <laughs> learn to interact with them in a different way. My guess is, is that you had some shifts and changes in your church during COVID. We had a few. We had a couple that quit going to church. And we weren't sure why. It hurt us a little bit. My wife saw this woman in Kroger, in a store. And the woman came up and she hugged Susan and she was crying. She said, we're not going to church anywhere. We're just struggling. We blamed it on church, but it doesn't have to, anything to do with church. We're having trouble facing the real issue. I hugged her and said, well, why don't we have church right here? Let's do in this aisle what we would do at the church aisle. Let's pray. Let's listen. Let's talk. Let's share. Love has a way of slipping around the barriers to make us carriers of the gospel. Thank you for coming today. I hope you'll come back tomorrow. We'll be the second installment of the